You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, Episode 72. One of the first things we talked about in your class, Lisa, that really stuck with me was this whole scientificness of oxytocin and how the oxytocin is what is making the contractions happen. And it's also what is helping your body deal with the contractions. And I remember when you said that, it makes me kind of emotional because when you said that in class, I just was like, wow, like the body is amazing that it puts us through this. And yet it also helps us through this. And welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. If you enjoy this show, we'd be incredibly grateful if you'd share it with a friend. You can follow and share our posts on social media at Birth Matters NYC or simply tell them to search for Birth Matters wherever they listen to podcasts. Oh my goodness. I cannot believe we are already sharing the last episode of season two today. In keeping with how I'm feeling about that, today's episode has a theme of gratitude. Gratitude is what Laura communicates lots of in today's birth story as she shares the story of a well-supported metamorphosis into motherhood, her matrescence. Laura's story is another pandemic birth story in which she equipped herself and her partner with birth doula support early in pregnancy, and then also hired a great postpartum doula to support her for several weeks afterwards. She shares how, while the birth didn't play out totally as she had hoped, it was still a positive experience, largely because she had great support and received respectful care. Then in postpartum, only nine days after birth, she and her husband start having COVID symptoms and find out he tested positive while their birth doula was visiting them. She describes some details of that challenging time. And then finally, Laura shares how her eyes were open to some of the terrible racial injustices and disparities that exist in our maternal health care system and how she wants to do her part to affect change. Now let's hear from Laura. Thank you so much for being on the show today to share your story. Oh, of course. I was delighted that you asked. Thank you. <laughs> Laura and her husband, Jacob, took class with me, I think, back in August. Yeah, August. Um, so and was, it, you did it earlier in your pregnancy. Yes, I was 16 weeks for our first class. So I wasn't even at the halfway mark when we finished 16 to 19 weeks, which is a long time ago now, it seems like. But we're so glad we took it when we did because it really did inform every decision we made going forward. So I'm so grateful for that. Hmm. Well, great. Well, maybe we can talk about that more in a little bit, but first, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. My name's Laura Sievers. My husband, Jacob, and I live in Manhattan. We live in Tribeca. I gave birth to our daughter, Philippa, on January 25th. So from the time that we're recording this, it was two months and one day ago. And I uh, work in fundraising and the performing arts nonprofit in New York City. Performing arts, my I heart. Know, I know. It's it's just so wild. Like last week, well, I think for everyone, people were really noting like March 13th, 14th, 15th is like the anniversary of all of this. 
And the last time I was in my office was March 13th. And much like the rest of the world, we thought we were going to be gone for two weeks. And I think about all the things that are still in my office, just waiting for me, like so many shoes under my desk and just other (laughs) like things that I just do not need right now. But I'm just like, wow. I'm sure they're collecting a lot of dust, but yes, we're very hopeful that, you know, as the vaccine continues to, to roll out and things get safer, that we'll be back. Cause that's such a huge piece of New York city cultural it life. Is. Yeah. yeah. It's a big part of why our family lives here to begin Absolutely. with. Absolutely. I mean, m- me too. And then also I work in the, the field. So it's, it's just, yeah, crazy time, but we're hopeful. Can you please first talk a little bit about how your pregnancy went and what were the various ways? How did you choose a care provider? Were there any things about your pregnancy in terms of the health of it that played out in the way you were pregnant and and gave birth? You know, how did you find out about doula support? Mm -hmm. How did you find my birth class? Any, any, all of that nutritional changes. There's so many things. Sure, Absolutely. So this was my first pregnancy and I am very much a planner. So it was something that we had given a lot of thought to before we even started trying. So in terms of picking my OB, I was working with an OB for a few years in the city that I just didn't really feel a big connection to. I would just go for my annual appointment. And then her office unexpectedly closed. She just closed her practice a couple of years ago. So I was like, oh, I need to find a new doctor. And I thought to myself, well, whomever I pick will hopefully be the doctor that I have my first baby with. So I worked with a wonderful doctor through Mount Sinai named Dr. Renuka Paka that a very dear friend of mine had her first baby with. And what I liked about Dr. Paka's practice was it's just her and a midwife who is named Sabine Judy. And I saw both of them throughout my care and working with a midwife for all the prenatal stuff was great just because of course, obviously she has such a knowledge and they, I feel as though they just have a very different approach. Although I must say that Dr. Paca has a very like low intervention, more, I don't want to say natural. Cause I feel like that's the, I, I, I don't like that word in terms of childbirth. Yeah. But, um, yeah I don't either. She, she has like a, a very like low intervention approach, which is more or less what I wanted. So when I found out I was pregnant, it was in May of 2020 in New York City, so the height of the pandemic. And we were honestly so excited that the pandemic was something that was a factor, but again, we had nothing else to compare this to. And I heard about doula work specifically. It was something that I had thought about for a while. I I didn't know anyone that worked with a birth doula, but it was something that that sounded very appealing to me. And at my first appointment, I think I was maybe seven weeks pregnant. Sabine, the midwife, one of her first questions was, will you be working with a doula? And I said, well, I'd really like to. Do you have someone you can recommend? And she referred me to the NYC Doula Collective, which is amazing because they work on a sliding scale of pricing. And you you sort of fill out a form with where you're giving birth, when you're due, how much you are comfortable spending, and then they send you candidates that you can then interview. We had three interviews, two with two kind of doula pairs, and then one individual woman. Everyone was incredible. We ended up hiring the team of Rachel Franzen and Corey Kirsch. And I'm so grateful that we did because having, I, I, sorry, I get emotional just even thinking about it because that was one of the first decisions we made. I think we hired them when I was maybe nine weeks pregnant, nine or 10 weeks. 
That's and they really were early. It was I, again, I'm a planner Great. and just like an anxious <laughs> person. So I like to have things booked. Mm-hmm. Um, and we met Rachel physically in person because she was who ended up attending our birth, but they were with us through the whole process. And any question, literally any question I had, they could answer. And they actually recommended that we take a birth class, which is how we found you with birth matters, which we took, as we were saying, I was 16 weeks pregnant. Everyone else in the class, I remember one family, they were due in like five weeks. And then I I thought about them a lot this fall. Like by the time I finally had my baby, I was like, wow, their son is four months old, but Mm -hmm. it was good. Cause like I said, it, it really informed a lot of decisions that I made going forward. And the format of the class, as opposed to like reading a book was amazing because it was something that Jacob and I could experience together in real time. And we were both hearing the information at the exact same time. And all of your amazing visuals and models, et cetera, were just enormously helpful. So thank you. It was really just a very, very positive experience. I actually, again, because we took it so early, reviewed my notes like the week before I was due and I'm so glad I did because there is a lot of info and it's just nice to have stuff fresh in your mind when, when you're actually in the moment. Yeah. Cause that's usually people's argument for, Oh, I don't want to take it yet. I want to take it in the last few weeks, but it's a trade-off, right? Because if you are a planner and a researcher and you really like to take deeper dives into different topics that I always provide extra resources on, then you're not going to really have time to do that. And yeah, that's great. So that you were able to go back and review your notes. So that whatever you needed to freshen up on was still fresh. Hopefully. Exactly. So for us, that's like what I've told friends that are expecting. And also again, because of the pandemic, what a blessing that we could take it from our living room. Because if I had done it later and been very pregnant, you know, those last few weeks, we didn't, I mean, again, there was a pandemic, but we didn't leave our home much just because things were getting a little uncomfortable for me. So just being able to be home in our environment and get all of the info was just so, so valuable. So I highly recommend that people take not just a birth class, but yours was sensational. So thank you. So, but my pregnancy was good. It was a healthy pregnancy, definitely dealt with nausea for the first about 16 or so weeks, but I felt good. Like I was definitely tired. I didn't have a ton of energy the way some pregnant women say they do. I had a definitely a better sense of my body than I have at any other point in my life, which was very special. And again, that also makes me emotional just because there's so many changes. And in some ways you don't recognize certain things and that's overwhelming. But at the same time, I really trusted that this was a process that not that was just happening to me, but that I was an active participant in. And that just felt incredible. Like I knew by the end that I was going to really miss feeling the baby move. And while I feel her move now, obviously outside, there is just such a special sacredness to that. So I felt very lucky and very well cared for by both my husband and by our providers and our doula. I had an overwhelming feeling of gratitude my entire pregnancy. Yeah. Which I carry with me (laughs) now in this postpartum world. But Mm -hmm. that was the single biggest takeaway from, from being pregnant and from giving birth was gratitude. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask a clarifying question about, about Dr. Paca's practice? Because it's changed over time. So with Sabine, does Sabine attend any births or only do prenatals? Great question. She now is only doing prenatals. She retired from births. I think she told me her last time, even in the hospital was like in May, 2020. So by the time that 
I was giving birth. She had not, she blessedly had not been in, in the COVID fray. Yes. But it was, again, even though she wasn't um, attending the births. And I knew the other thing with too, with Dr. Paca's practice, she works with a few other doctors. So I didn't know who would be on call when the big day arrived. But I felt, even though I had not met any of the other providers, I knew that they all kind of shared her philosophy, which made me feel good. Cause I knew very likely that I would want certain medical interventions, but I didn't want to be pushed in any one direction. I wanted to really kind of make decisions in the moment. Even though I like to plan in advance, that was one thing <laughs> that I knew would probably present itself as it was happening. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, so is there anything else you wanted to share about the prenatal journey before you jump into the birth? I don't think so. But if I do, I maybe will come back to it. Yeah, yeah, you can weave it in. <laughs> yeah. I feel very lucky, like I said, that it was healthy. And perhaps if I have future pregnancies, perhaps we will not be in a pandemic. So that will probably be a big, that be nice, (laughs) right? Exactly. So like going into my appointment with a mask by the end, it felt very normal, honestly. And again, I just felt really, really grateful that even in a pandemic, I was so well cared for, which is not the case. I know for, I mean, I feel very privileged that that was my experience. So that's been a big theme for me this past year is just how grateful I feel for the people that took care of us. And were literally risking their lives by Mm -hmm. still showing up to work and that I could just come in, you know, for an hour less, most of the time in a mask and then leave. And they were so careful and Mm -hmm. so appreciative, but they all still came to work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Big sacrifices. Yeah, absolutely. So I was very fortunate that I was able to start my maternity leave a month before my due date, which was right around the Christmas holidays. So I had a really nice few Mm -hmm. weeks just home with my husband. Blessedly, we were able to see my parents in a very safe way toward the end, which was great. And I ended up going a week late. So when my due date arrived, my due date was on Martin Luther King Day. I remember this because I was supposed to go in and see my OB on my due date, but the office was closed. So I saw her on the 19th. So I was one day late and my pregnancy was not complicated. The baby was moving fine. She was in a great position. We knew it was just a matter of waiting. And one thing I was so, so grateful to Dr. Paca about was that she did not pressure me to have a scheduled induction. And that was definitely something that I did not want based upon what I had learned from your class. My goal was to spontaneously go into labor. So I was a day late. I was in her office and she still was not even talking about an induction, which was wonderful. Like never pressured me. Our feeling was, we're just going to wait and see. The same sadly cannot be said of the ultrasound clinic in that I went in for my final screening to see the baby. And because of COVID, they were doing so many increased screenings. And so of course they would ask me symptoms, blessedly no. And then how many weeks are you? And when I told the woman at the door that I was 40 weeks pregnant, she kind of freaked out. And I, and, and I was like, no, it's fine. It's totally fine. So there was a lot of, I <laughs> You're having to comfort thing, her. <laughs> no, that was one thing that Hi. surprised me was that outside of Dr. Paca and our birth doulas, everyone else seemed very alarmed that I was past my due date, even though I know so many babies, especially for first time. First, first time. Off. Yeah. So common. 
So that was a bit of an emotional thing. And that actually also in terms of friends and family, I mean, God bless everybody who checked in, but by the end it was getting tough of just like all the texts of like, have you had the baby? Have you had the baby? And I felt a lot of pressure to have this baby because I knew people were waiting. I can't remember if I said it to your group and you would have been a great person to say this to because you came to class so early is like, maybe don't tell anybody your due date. Just tell them the due month right? because it can be so stressful. You feel like that watch pot that never boils, right? Oh, a thousand percent. <laughs> and I, I learned, cause I've definitely been guilty of that with friends, you know, like, and of course it's so lovely to check in and see how someone's doing. Yeah. But by the end it was, and then I felt a lot of pressure, especially if it was coming via text to reply because I didn't want people to think that worry. I didn't reply because I wasn't in labor or worry. Or, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So blessedly the baby finally did come. I went to bed on a Sunday night and I was due on a Monday. So I was now six days late. I went to bed on Sunday night. My husband was still up. He was in the other room. I was cuddled up with my dog and I think I was either about to fall asleep or I had just fallen asleep. And I suddenly felt this gush of warm water. And so my water had broken And I feel like you said this a hundred times in our class that it normally does not happen like in the movies where it's a big gush of water. And of course that was exactly what happened to me. And the first thing I did, I I told my husband and then I texted our birth doulas. So we had a system where once I hit 37 weeks, they were on call 24 seven and the plan was text them. And within two minutes, Rachel did reply and said, that's great. Do you want to talk? And so she called me. I think she asked me, did it break in one big gush? The answer was yes. Like, is it colored? I think, no, it was just clear. There was no, any sign of meconium or any sign of blood, but I had tested a few weeks earlier with groupie strep. I was positive for it. And so I knew from your class. And I also knew from my doctor that if I tested positive, they were going to ask that I go into the hospital immediately. So I was a little disappointed that my water broke first because my hope had been that I could labor at home with our doula for as long as possible. So immediately that was not going to be an option, but honestly, I was a week late. So I was pretty ready to go. So then I called first my doctor's office or her aftercare hours because it was in the middle of the night. And I knew that they were going to need us to come in right away, but I also knew that their urgency did not need to be my urgency and that it would be okay if we took some time. Thanks to Lisa. I I knew that. And I love that. That's a quotable because I want to borrow that one. Oh, good, good. (laughs) I wasn't having contractions. Like I felt fine. My water just kept breaking. So it was very messy. And the irony too, was that I had called and then it took the doctor like an hour to call me back. So I was like, they're clearly not in a rush. So Jacob and I eventually did drive to the hospital. I was delivering at Mount Sinai West. So it was just that time of night, it was like a 15 minute drive from our apartment. And one of the other things that really gave me a lot of anxiety in advance was the thought of having to go to the hospital in the middle of the night because of parking. But because again, I was not in active labor, we were able to park at a garage across the street and I could walk in. Like I was, Jacob was so sweet. He kept being like, are you okay? Are you sure? I was in no pain. I was just gushing amniotic fluid, but, but otherwise, yes, exactly. Multiple times. (laughs) I was like soaking wet by the time time we finally walked in the door, but it was totally fine. Also because it was the middle of the night, nobody was there. Nobody was in triage, which was another thing that I had really been anxious about having to wait in triage Cause I know in New York city that that does sometimes happen that you have to wait. Thank goodness we did not. But 
the number one thing for me, other than wanting to have a healthy, successful birth in terms of the hospital was I desperately wanted a private postpartum room. The thought of sharing a room with someone immediately after giving birth was really overwhelming to me. And again, what a place of privilege that I'm coming from, that that would even be an option. But I made my husband memorize the instructions for how to get a private postpartum room at Mount Sinai West because it's not (laughs) promised. So that was the first thing we asked when we walked in the door and then we just kept asking it. So, but I'll get back to that in a minute. But when I tested positive for group B strep, Dr. Paca had told me in her opinion, assuming everything else with the baby is fine, I'll be admitted to labor and delivery. And then they will let me wait before they intervene with anything, which has sounded really good to me because as I said, I was really hoping to avoid an induction. And did she quantify that? Did she say, we'll let you wait X number of hours or 12 hours? She said they would let me wait. So I was very optimistic that even though my water broke and we were in the hospital, that I was going to get to go to bed and then wait and see what happened in terms of the contractions. So the doctor that admitted me was an incredible resident and she told me the same thing. She was like, I think we can let you wait. You and your husband can go to sleep and then we'll just reassess, you know, later in the morning when the sun has risen. So I was like, great, this is exciting. So she stepped away for five minutes and she came back and she said, so the doctor on call actually wants to start an induction. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And thanks again to your class, I knew what kind of the various options would be. And also I should mention that during this whole time, we were actively still in touch with Rachel via text. She was not going to come to the hospital until there was really something for her to do. So I texted her, they want to induce me, they want to do Pitocin. And she said, see if they'll do, and I forget the medical term, forgive me, the alternative to Pitocin. Are you talking about Cytotec or Cervidil? Cytotec. That was what she said, see if they'll do Cytotec. So I Mm -hmm. asked the question once we were in labor and delivery, and I was informed that in fact, Pitocin, they feel is the least invasive of all of the options because they can turn Pitocin off. And so I said, okay, that's fine. So they administered the Pertocin probably around 4 a.m. Labor and delivery is obviously private. So it was just Jacob and I in the room. But because they were doing Pertocin, another thing I had really hoped for was that I could be mobile through as much of labor as possible. But because of the Pertocin, I needed to have full-time fetal heart rate monitoring. So that was another thing that we had really hoped that we would get that we didn't get. And they Um, didn't have wireless they I don't think they do there. And it was cumbersome. I mean, it was fine, but it was a little cumbersome and a little bit of a bummer just because right off the bat, like two of the things that I had really kind of hoped for were just not going to be an option. And I should also mention that working with our doula, our birth doulas was great because they really encouraged having a birth preference sheet that you bring with you to the hospital. It's not a birth plan, but it's a preference sheet. And so already two of the two of my big preferences were like not an option, which were intermittent monitoring and no inductions. But again, we're just kind of rolling with it. I must say that I didn't feel pressured by the staff. I mean, the Pitocin was just like not an option and the monitoring was also not optional, but there was a lot of kindness with the way that those things were kind of delivered. Question on when you said the doctor on call wanted to start the induction, did they tell you why? You know, I don't think they did. And I think it was the middle of the night 
and I just kind of said, okay. Yeah. I think, I just think curious. it might have been because, you know, I think it might've been because I was a week late, but who knows? Maybe they just told me that. <laughs> it didn't seem like there was like a big overwhelming medical reason, but I was not in a position to, for lack of a better word, really fight them on it. I, I felt like, okay, this is fine. And I also, because we had Rachel, I felt even though she wasn't yet at the hospital with us, I felt like we will have someone in our corner soon that can, if anything else goes left, she can really kind of explain and help us advocate. So we did manage to get maybe an hour of sleep. And then by 7am, my contractions suddenly started and they were suddenly pretty strong, which was a shock to, to one system because I was going from feeling nothing to feeling very intense contractions. And one of the first things we talked about in your class, Lisa, that really stuck with me was this whole, this whole scientificness of oxytocin and how the oxytocin is what is making the contractions happen. And it's also what is helping your body deal with the contractions. And I remember when you said that, it makes me kind of emotional because when you said that in class, I just was like, wow, like the body is amazing that it can it puts us through this and yet it also helps us through this. So unfortunately with Pitocin, you get the contractions, but you don't get the oxytocin that helps you deal with the pain. So I was in pain pretty quickly. So we texted Rachel probably around 9 a.m. By now we'd been at the hospital about seven-ish hours I had been having pretty intense contractions for a couple hours and Jacob and I were managing them pretty well. Another thing that I found absolutely fascinating from the pain management part of your course was talking about how the pelvic floor is directly kind of related to our mouths and our jaws. I studied music in college. I was a voice major. And so I spent four years doing a lot of lip trills and perfecting them. And then once I graduated, I didn't do them anymore. So I did so many lip trills while in labor. Those, the, the, the <laughs> going back to your training, your warmups. Warm <laughs> oh, I am really using this. This is great. That was my go-to for kind of relaxing after the contractions. And while the contractions were happening, even when they kind of first started, I would count. This has kind of always been my way of dealing with being in kind of intense pain is counting until they started to peak. And then I would count them down and I would count really slowly. So I would maybe get to eight seconds and then 10 seconds and 12 seconds. And then as the contractions got more and more intense, I found I had this like inclination to kind of bend over. So I was just like, I was standing up next to the bed and I would just kind of collapse my torso onto the bed as much as I could with a very big belly. And then I'd come back up. And it's really amazing when they're done they're you're like not in pain anymore. So you can kind of be normal for the next, I don't know, minute and a half between the two. So they just got more and more intense. And Rachel arrived, I think around 1030. And both Jacob and I were just so happy to see her again. We had been talking to her for like, I don't know, seven months and finally meeting her in person was really exciting. And we, of course we were all masked, but yeah, it was just like, oh, hi, like I know you and I've, yet I've never met you before. And I remember at one point, I think Jacob had to step out of the room for a second and Rachel just like, didn't even ask. I think that she just reached out her hand and I just like grasped her hand through the contraction. And then from there, I felt like the three of us were really all in it. I'm not a person that usually likes to be massaged. I don't know why. I just, that's not usually my go-to for 
comfort or for pain, but she at one point after contraction gave me this like lovely back massage. And it was so, it was like a spa treatment. It was just so nice and calming. And like I said, the, the pain was pretty intense pretty quickly. And it was obviously only getting, getting more and more intense. And so Rachel told me with Pitocin, don't, if I, if I knew I wanted to get an epidural, which I was open to and felt so informed about because of you that she said, if you do want one, with Pitocin contractions, don't wait until you can't stand even one more. Wait until you think you can't stand 10 more. And I think that was because they weren't going to be getting any easier. So yeah. And I felt very supported in the decision to have an epidural. I think a lot of times when I was telling people we were working with a doula, they assumed we were doing a home birth. And obviously the doula has no um, agenda. Their agenda is your agenda. They're there to help you. And a while good, a good doula doesn't a have an doula, agenda. I, yeah, <laughs> there doula. are doulas out there who do have agenda. Yes. And bless <laughs> I don't recommend them. <laughs> yes. We were working with beyond a good doula, like yes. the best. She was just incredible. And I felt so supported in just knowing that. And that was actually something we talked a lot about in our pre birth chats together was that I didn't want to be in so much pain that the birth experience was really negative. I wanted it to be a semi-positive experience. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I figured that would likely include pain management. Yeah. So they, at first I had thought that I wanted to be examined before getting the epidural because I wanted to know how many centimeters I was. And Rachel said to me, she said, is it really going to make a difference? And it was not. Because quite frankly, I was in pain and I'm so glad, again, there were so many things that day that she said to me that I'm just so glad she did. And that was one of them because I got the epidural. Jacob was able to stay in the room with me, which was great. I know that that's not always the case, but he was able to be there with me, which was really good because I had some very intense contractions while they were happening, while they were administering it. And I was able to stay still because he was there. And was Jacob or was Rachel, were they allowed to ever leave the room fully? Yes, they were. At this time, they were allowing people to go out of the room. Because I think once I got the epidural, Rachel really encouraged Jacob to, to get some food. So I think he ordered some like a sandwich from a deli or something. And, and then he had to go down to the hospital lobby to grab it. But yes, Rachel had to leave the room. I thought maybe they sent her into the bathroom because that's what they've been doing oh, a lot. You know what? Maybe <laughs> a partner she, and a doula stuck in a bathroom together. Maybe a lot of the she time. was in the bathroom. I think she was in the hall, but she might have been in the bathroom. That's so funny. There's yeah. no reason you would have been observing that or noting exactly. that necessarily. He went away and then she came back. So, but again, I was just so grateful that Jacob could be in the room with me. And it's really amazing because that thing kicks in quickly and pretty immediately I felt better. I am someone that's very sensitive to anesthesia. Not that I've had it a lot, but even just getting fillings with at the dentist, I'm always a little loopy. So having this level of anesthesia was a lot for my body. So I was pretty numb, which I obviously knew I would be, but it it was kind of a strange sensation. And then I was shivering like pretty seriously, kind of within the like five minutes after getting it like through the end, which was a little weird. It wasn't scary though, because I knew it was normal. And, you know, I wasn't paranoid that it had gone wrong. Like I knew that everything was fine, but I was shivering so much that it was hard to sleep. I just couldn't really fall asleep because it was, it was like this strange 
sensation the whole time. So I was able to rest certainly, but that did surprise me. And another thing that I would say, even if you are having a medicated birth, having someone in the room with you that has been through so many births is such a blessing. This was my first birth. Obviously this was my husband's wife's first time giving birth. So we had never attended a birth is the moral of the story. And Rachel made sure that even with the epidural, I've shifted positions at least every hour so that things still progressed. And also pretty quickly after I had the epidural, they examined me and I was only three centimeters dilated. And again, I think if I had known that before getting it, I would have felt discouraged. I don't know why. I think that that's a conversation that people have like, oh, I made it eight centimeters. Oh, I only made it two centimeters. And I I don't know. It shouldn't be a competition, right? It shouldn't be a competition. Exactly. And so I think that had I known that, I probably would have oddly felt pressure to kind of push through. Mm -hmm. But because I didn't know that, I did what was best for me in the moment. And I'm Mm -hmm. glad that that was the case. And yeah, so that was a positive experience. And so I think the epidural was administered around 12 or 1230 in the afternoon. And then truly the rest of the day was just kind of waiting. Like you can't be mobile, obviously, when you have it, which I knew, of course. And yeah, we just had a, a bunch of really nice, very long conversations just about life. And I was so interested in, you know, Rachel's work and, how she got started as a doula and, you know, what they've experienced during COVID. Cause I think for a while she and her partner, Corey, were just doing virtual care, but they'd been back in the hospitals since May and this was January. So they'd seen a lot of changes. And I should also mention that in triage because of COVID, both Jacob and I um, had PCR COVID tests and Rachel also had to have a PCR test and mine and Jacob's results came back negative pretty pretty quickly, probably like six-ish hours later. I don't think Rachel's test ever came back. I think like to this day, I think they lost it, quite frankly. To this day, we did not get her COVID test, but we were all in masks the whole time and were very, very careful. So the day just kind of progressed, just waiting, like having, I kept asking her to look at the the monitor and tell me like, what, what do you think's happening? And it's just wild because like so much is happening in your body, but yet with the epidural, you just don't feel it. And I think it was probably around like six or seven in the evening that I started to feel a lot of pressure, just like, and that happened gradually and yet quickly at the same time. And so we notified the nurse on call. And also too, obviously labor is long and you see a lot of different nursing staff come through. I think we had at least three shift changes And I just have to say, I was just so incredibly grateful to to the nursing staff. You know, they've been doing this a long time under very difficult circumstances, and they just made me feel so cared for. It makes me so emotional um, to think about just because, again, like, not everyone gets that. And I just feel really, really grateful that Mm -hmm. nobody was unkind. Nobody was not willing to explain things. Everyone was really just so supportive and just incredible. And so the doctor that was going to be on call when I delivered, I had never met him, but I knew of course he was part of my doctor's team. And one of the nurses said, okay, Dr. Lee, his name is Dr. Harry Lee is going to come in in a minute. And I will never forget this. Rachel got down next to me. She like leaned, crouched down. So we were kind of face to face. I was in the bed obviously. And she said to me, so the doctor's going to come in in a minute this is going to kind of go one or two ways. One, 
he's going to say, take all the time you need. We're not in any rush. Or he's going to say, okay, let's get started with pushing. And she said, do not let him or anyone else pressure you. This is totally your timeline. Sorry. And I'm so grateful that she did that because it's just an example of, I would not have known that those two scenarios could be the case. Jacob would not have known. We had never been in this this space before. And uh, blessedly he came in and it was the former. He was so lovely and just said, you know, take all the time you need. You let me know when you're ready to go, which was great because I think they checked me again and I was eight centimeters. So had I started pushing, it would have been very futile because <laughs> we still had a ways to go. So a couple hours go by and the pressure's just building. And I, I said to Rachel, I said, okay, I really think it's time. And Dr. Lee came in pretty quickly and he stayed in the room the whole time, which I don't know it, how common that is. I think it maybe depends on what else is happening on the floor. Sure. He, he was in the room the whole time and it was him. And it was actually the doctor that admitted us in triage. who was a, a very lovely resident. And I remember Dr. Lee's nurse that specifically worked with him for pushing was this wonderfully lovely woman named Mariah. And it's so bizarre because all of a sudden the room fills up with people and you know, the room's not huge. And pretty much all day, it was obviously Jacob, myself and Rachel, and then people coming in and out. But then once it was time to push, I feel like in my mind, there were like eight people in there. There probably were eight people in there, but I'm not 100% sure. Feels like a crowd, right? It feels like a crowd. And it's so funny because I know that the lights were, we had kept the lights off and obviously it was well into the evening. So it was dark outside. So we had kept the lights off all day. And I know the lights were on because they have to be on when you're pushing. But in my mind, it was dark in the room, which is so bizarre. But I think it was because I was so very focused. And one thing that I learned from your class that I had asked my OB about a number of times was if I have the epidural, when it comes time to pushing, can I be in any position I want? Or am I going to have to be on my back? And she had told me, whatever you want is what we'll do. And Dr. Lee, blessedly, same thing. He said, whatever you want. So I started Yay, my That's yes, not yes. very common. Not yes, common but, enough. <laughs> yes, totally. And by then, I was definitely feeling a lot of pain, not contraction pain, but just so much pressure that it was very painful. And by then too, I still felt really shaky, but I could feel my legs. I must've been able to feel my arms too, but I, I was starting to feel things. So I don't know if that was just because of the, where the baby was or if they turned down the epidural, I don't know. But I was, I was definitely feeling things, which is very important when it comes to pushing because otherwise you are pushing with no knowledge of what's happening. So I started pushing on my back and then I think we switched to the, my side and then I was able to, to squat and use the birthing bar. And then I went back to my back. I pushed for an hour and a half. And for me, it was the most painful piece of labor. I felt like it was productive because, you know, they told me it was, <laughs> they told me like, you're, this is it. Keep, keep leaning into that feeling. And I remember, so on my right side, it was Jacob and Rachel. Jacob was closest to me. And on my left was Mariah and I think another nurse and Dr. Lee. And one thing that he, that Dr. Lee was doing was he was, he had his fingers basically like in my vagina, like saying, push into this. That was so helpful. Good. 
uncomfortable as it was, it was so helpful because it gave me something to focus on. And I felt like he was really an active coach through the whole thing, Mm -hmm. which was very empowering. And also I I remember I asked Mariah, I said, because I was having a hard time timing the pushing with the contractions. And I asked her, I said, can you look at the monitor and just tell me when to start? Cause I was guessing when to start. Cause you're kind of supposed to push with the contraction, but I was doing it too early. So then the contraction would continue beyond the push. And that was just incredibly painful. And I was feeling just so much pressure and, and pain both in my vagina and also like in my tailbone, I felt like, like in my rectum, like just pain, a lot of pressure, but I felt again, so supported through that whole process. And I remember by the end, I could tell that it was progressing because then there was like a burning sensation and they did have me reach down and feel the baby's head, which was like wild. As you said, it would be, it was squishy, but when she did come out, it was like a surprise to me because it, it didn't feel, I don't know. I couldn't differentiate like between she's here, she's almost here. But when she did come out, my immediate first thought was that she was so beautiful. (laughs) And then my second thought was, well, is she okay? <laughs> Cause she was kind of purple, which, um, I know is normal and it took but we're her- still not used to seeing. No, that, right? totally. Yeah. And my husband, the way he talks about it, he says that when she came out, he had never seen anything so shiny in his whole life. Cause I guess there was like, a <laughs> light on her and she was gooey. So she was kind of reflective. <laughs> um, and like, I just love this idea that she was like this, this like bright, shiny penny that came out and he just, <laughs> shiny thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was so focused while I was pushing that. Again, I thought she was so beautiful. Is she okay? And then I just kind of was like in this fog and I had a little bit of tearing. So they immediately tended to that. And that was quite painful, (laughs) the stitches. But again, I just kind of like let it pass. And then the second feeling I had was just gratitude. And I felt like so kind of out of it and exhausted that I was having a hard time like speaking, but I think I did manage to squeak out like Dr. Lee, just thank you. Like, thank you so much. And of course, you know, similarly with Rachel, I just felt so grateful to her and just very lucky that we had that support from such a lovely person. And I know that every year, makes me so emotional every year on Philippa's birthday I'll think about her I really will do people normally cry this much in your podcast you are so welcome to cry it's a monumental enormous life event so it makes sense yeah Um, a very emotional person anyway so obviously and you're still only Exactly. You're two months out. Really hormonal still. Yeah. Very emotional. But I I do. I'll think about Rachel every year on her birthday because it's just such a a wild relationship. Again, I had only met this woman Mm -hmm. in person that day. She (laughs) saw my entire body. (laughs) Like, yeah. At your most vulnerable. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. So the baby came out. She was born at 10 25 p.m. on January 25th. So I feel like 25 will maybe be a special number for her. And I was able to do skin to skin, of course, which was really important to me. Blessedly, she was totally healthy. And on our birth preference sheet, one of the things that you had talked about in class was making sure to ask to see the placenta, which we did. And actually the doctor that showed it to us, it was so sweet. She was like, this is the sack your baby was born in. Isn't that amazing? And I was like, yes. And I don't want to see it anymore. It's quite gross. (laughs) 
<laughs> All done. That was, that was really nice. Cause I know you had said that sometimes they, they don't do that. And then God forbid, you know, it's not all out or something. Yeah, okay. So the fact that they were not only happy to do it, but then very excited to kind of give us a tour of the placenta. (laughs) Maybe a little too excited. (laughs) A little too excited. Um, But it was all good. Like, you know, we chose to delay the baby's bath. We did delayed cord clamping, but that's all of nowadays, like maybe a minute, three minutes or something. It was quick. And then within the first hour, I did want to try and go ahead and breastfeed. And having Rachel there, that was tremendous because I was still feeling a little physically like out of it from the epidural. And the baby, obviously, newborns are small. She was six pounds, three ounces. And that feels so very tiny. So trying to like maneuver her just felt like a little foreign. And we were having a really hard time getting her just to open her mouth. So latching was not happening within the first hour, which I knew was very normal, but it's still a little unsettling just because you hear, I had heard over and over again, how important that initial feed is. And another thing Rachel said to me, was one of the last things she said before she left was, do not let them pressure you into doing anything you don't want to do in terms of feeding this baby. If you can't get her to latch, just hand express colostrum and feed it to her with a syringe. And excellent advice. It was so, thank God she said that because Mm -hmm. we did end up going into the postpartum unit and couldn't get her to latch. But because Rachel had said that, I asked and they said yes. So back to the private room, which was really important to me. For whatever reason, the hospital at this current juncture, when I gave birth with their COVID protocols, was not allowing anyone to have a private room. I think it was a staffing thing. And we asked and we asked, but because we tested negative for COVID, we were not going to be getting a private room. So that first night, I think it was around midnight or 1230. So like 24 hours in, obviously very exhausted, very emotional, just like I'm holding this tiny baby. I'm in a wheelchair being pushed in. And we had a roommate that first night who I found out subsequently had had a C-section about three days prior. So she was recovering from a very major surgery she chose to have her baby in the nursery, but we knew we wanted Philippa with us. And at our hospital, the postpartum rooms do not have a place for the partner to sleep. And we hadn't really discussed what we would do if Jacob didn't have a place to sleep. And it was late. It was 1230. And we just kind of looked at each other and he was like, well, I'm not leaving. And so I said, okay, well, do you want to share my hospital bed? I mean, <laughs> it was kind of like being back in college, like sharing a dorm bed, um, oh my goodness. really small. And it was very hot in the room. So we shared my hospital bed. The baby was right next to us in her little plastic bassinet. And it just was like, it kind of hit me at like one in the morning. It's like, oh my God, like I'm so exhausted. <laughs> I'm feeling a little gross <laughs> physically And there's a stranger on the other side of this curtain. And this is not really what I had envisioned, but we're here and we're going to make the most of it. And I think we were able to make the most of it because again, the nurses in postpartum were amazing. They were just amazing. And the gratitude I feel to like the four or five women that we worked with in the 48 hours or so, maybe 36 hours that I was there were just phenomenal. And anything we needed, they were there with and so positive, so kind. And our roommate ended up being discharged 
the, the next day. So the second night we had the room to ourselves, but again, because of COVID cleaning protocols, Jacob was not allowed to sleep in the other bed. So two nights we shared that little hospital bed and Mm -hmm. we just were like, okay, well, we'll just look forward to being home. So we stayed in the hospital for two nights again, because I gave birth so late at night, it was really just like a day and a half, but two nights. And I remember the pediatrician that was on call looking at the baby was this unbelievably sweet woman. And I worked with two lactation consultants while we were in postpartum. And again, because the baby was small, she had a little bit of jaundice, which they actually didn't tell me, which to be honest with you, I'm pretty grateful for, because I think I would have just stressed about it, but the jaundice improved, which apparently doesn't always happen, but they were very delighted by. So I forget, they told me like when, when she was born, it was like a five and then it was a three, which I don't have any medical background. So I have no idea what that means, but I think that's what they kept telling me. But anyway, it was a good thing. Like when I told our pediatrician that she was delighted. So her jaundice improved kind of on its own, which was good. And we were really excited and ready to go home. The, The second morning we're like, okay, ready to go home. And we knew that no one would be in our apartment when we got home. It was just going to be us. My mom was in New York, so she did come by that first night. And the next day, we had a postpartum doula joining us. One of the things that I find really interesting about doula work is that it's very niche and very specific. So Rachel and Corey were birth doulas. So they were with us through our whole prenatal journey and then obviously the birth. And then I knew I wanted support in the aftermath, but I didn't want a more traditional baby or night nurse, largely because I know that with those contracts, they often don't leave your house. They're with you 24 seven. And I just kind of wanted to have some of the time, just Jacob and I and the baby. So when looking into what were our care options, the term postpartum doula came up and Rachel and Corey, again, this was early on in my pregnancy said, let us look into who we know from our network who might be doing in-person care. And the first name they sent us was Adrienne Stair. And yesterday was her last day with us. And I was so sad when she left, but we knew from jump, it was not going to be a super long contract. And I just am so grateful to her. She was there the next morning. So we'd been home with the baby for less than 24 hours. And she walked in the door and just for the next eight weeks provided such tremendous support, answered every question had a resource for everything, fed us, like cooked very delicious meals from just literally whatever she found in our fridge, which was so great. And also I feel I'm a very social person and I am a person that processes things by talking. And because of COVID having been home for, by now it's been a full year, not really having face-to-face friend interactions, having Adrian in our house two days a week, the last thing I wanted to do was take a nap. I just wanted to talk to her and just feeling like I had this person that was like going to answer every question, was going to reassure me, was going to problem solve with me and would just talk to me about like anything was such a gift and a joy. So we're so, so, so grateful to her. I told her as she was leaving that if I have a second baby and we still live in New York and she is still a postpartum doula, she is going to be with us because I can't really imagine not having her with us again through this time. And also quite frankly, getting to have her be with our daughter. I mean, Philippa's eight weeks old and she's seen her from the time that she was three days old. Mm, um, she's like so an adopted aunt. 
Totally. And just like the thought that, and I know that's how this works. And similarly with Rachel, I mean, and Corey hasn't even met her in person. Like these people come in and they're so helpful and then they're gone because it's just the way that that goes. And I never once when they were gone felt abandoned or anything. I just know that's the nature, the nature of the job. And also for us, the postpartum was particularly challenging because even though Jacob and I tested negative for COVID in the hospital, Unfortunately, we tested positive when we came home. We'd been home for a day and he started having symptoms. Of course, thinking we had COVID was the last thing from our minds. We both just thought we were sleep deprived. His symptoms were a sore throat and mine started the next day with pretty intense nasal congestion. And I had had a lot of girlfriends who had babies in a pre-pandemic world who got very sick within the first few days of their baby's life. Cause I think you're exhausted and your immune system is compromised. So I just thought that was what was happening. I thought, Oh, I'm just getting a cold. Um, Plus being in a hospital. Exactly. It, you know, it's does great. expose us to things. That's very true. Mm-hmm. And in this case we were masked, I would say 90% of the time in the hospital, mm-hmm. we had just tested negative. The vaccine had been available for a while for medical professionals. I don't even remember what prompted Jacob to go get a test. But when he got that phone call that he was positive, it was like everything kind of stopped. So part of our contract with Rachel and Corey was that whomever attended our birth would do one postpartum follow-up. So it was nine days after giving birth. It was a Wednesday. And Rachel was in our apartment when Jacob got the call. And we were masked. But I felt so terrible that this woman who had just been there for us and like had given us this incredible gift of support and her kindness that we then exposed her. I felt so guilty. She could not have been more gracious about the whole thing. Adrian too, because she had been with us. So we'd exposed my mother, Adrian and Rachel, like three very important women in my life at this moment. And thank God, none of them tested positive. Uh, I tested positive the day after Jacob because we figured, well, he's positive. I've got to be positive. Mm-hmm. And of course, then the immediate concern became the baby. And when he got his positive test, they told him, you need to socially distance from your family. And he was like, I have a nine-day-old baby and we live in an apartment. Like, how how is that going to happen? So that first night, he slept on the couch in our living room and I was with the baby in our room. She's been in a bassinet in our room with us. And I just thought to myself... I really hope I'm positive too, to be honest, because the thought of us having to distance from each other with this baby was impossible. And blessedly, we didn't get so sick that we couldn't care for ourselves or for her. She never had any symptoms. And our pediatrician had told us, you know, because she's so tiny and new to the world, obviously, if she gets a fever, regardless of COVID, you need to be going to the ER. So we knew all that. We were frantically taking her temperature like every few hours just out of anxiety. And we were wearing masks with her. Breastfeeding in a mask with such a tiny new baby was really challenging. And of course, then I was so deeply worried that I was emotionally scarring her because she couldn't see my face. Yeah. But our doctor reassured us, no, the baby is still, she can hear you. She can see your eyes. If you're far enough away from her, you can take off your mask. Although who knows how far a a newborn can see at 10 days old. Right. Yeah. Not far. Not far. So that was just like a really bizarre moment in time. Blessedly, I had a a family friend who's a doctor who I called a few times who just was kind of talking me through things. And he kept saying, he was like, someday you're going to laugh about this. And while I do not think I'm going to laugh about it, I do look back on it even just like 
seven weeks out from this experience of like, that was a wild curveball to have with such a tiny baby. And even through that, we were so supported by both Rachel and Adrian. They checked in on us every day. I think Adrian and I FaceTimed a few times as like part of a virtual care. Yeah. It was just like any question, anything that came up, we were able to still get answers and support. And again, I feel incredibly privileged that we could afford to have this kind of level of care. I know that that is not a given. And especially in a pandemic, people are very isolated from family or other networks that are kind of built in to help. And also in our culture, of course, we don't live in a village. We don't group breastfeed. There's no like, you know, that level of kind of the the whole birth experience is so different in our country and in our culture, but yet feeling like even through a screen I had support was invaluable. Yeah. So, so, so thankful to hear that you had such amazing support. Yes. And again, like I, you know, I take COVID very seriously. We believe we got it from the hospital because we've been nowhere else, but I do Mm -hmm. feel so thankful that our symptoms were on the mild side and that the baby never got sick. Cause goodness, that would have been really scary. Cause I don't really even know what we would have done if we had to isolate from her. Like would we, we couldn't have brought her back to the hospital. (laughs) Like we can't just drop off the baby and be like, can you take care of this? Um, So again, it could have been so much worse. And we knew that in the moment, but, but still when Jacob got that phone call that his test was positive, it was just like freeze, like panic. And Rachel got out of the apartment within like a minute. Thank God. And again, she and Adrian and my mom all continued to test negative. Nobody ever contracted it. That would have felt terrible. But Mm -hmm. as both Rachel and Adrian said to me multiple times, this is a risk that we assume in the work that we do. Yeah. And we know that this is not anybody's fault. This is not Mm. within anyone's control. This is the nature of this disease and this time. Mm -hmm. Um, They had each had their first dose of the vaccine. So I do really wonder if that kind of protected Mm. them. Also, again, we were wearing masks. Masks really do work. Thank goodness. So yeah. And now we're eight weeks in. Again, yesterday was Adrian's last day with us and just will forever be so appreciative to her just for everything. She's just a lovely person and so knowledgeable and had me wearing that baby. <laughs> That's her baby wearing. She's so, so like knowledgeable about it. And yeah. And I just, I feel very empowered because she set us up to do it on our own, which was the goal. Again, never pressured us everything was, what do you feel comfortable with? What is your gut telling you? We are 100% on our schedule, doing it our way, how we want with this baby, which is not to be negative toward, you know, a more traditional or structured baby nurse situation. Cause again, what an incredible skill set and support for us. I just, I wanted to feel like we could do it on our own. And I do feel like that some moments, you know, it doesn't feel like we're doing it the best of jobs, but you know, we are doing all of us have many of those yes, moments. No, of course. And that as Adrian kept reminding me, that is just parenthood. And that is what being a mother mm-hmm. and a parent is that, you know, this is the rest of your life and mm-hmm. feeling like we had such tremendous care from jump was, was beyond. So when I reflect on my pregnancy and birth, and then this immediate postpartum, the big word is gratitude which is beautiful and a blessing. And again, a huge privilege. And this whole year has really highlighted privilege in a way for so many people on so many levels. And it's really just kind of given me a lot to reflect on about how can I be supportive of other communities that are 
not support, like, especially the, just the fact that, you know, black maternal health in America, especially in New York city is just unacceptably. It's so date. The fact, I can't remember the statistics. So please feel free to add that. And if you know it off the top of your head, black, black, black birthing people are 12 times as likely to die in childbirth in New York city. And then in the U S it's also bad, just not as bad. It's three to four times as likely to die in childbirth as non-black people. Yeah. And um, just, oh. yeah, it's, it's, it's got to change. We need to Absolutely. do a lot of advocacy and a lot of work to change Absolutely. many aspects of our maternal healthcare system. Absolutely. And it's given, it's just, again, it's made me feel so grateful and also just well, what can I do? And, mm-hmm. you know, with at the end of the calendar year, my husband and I decided to make um, a few charitable gifts. And one of the organizations that we made a gift to is the, um, national birth equity collaborative. Oh, good. I'm so glad you heard about them. Yeah. I think I read about them in the New York times this fall. And I just, it really resonated with me obviously as a pregnant person. And I feel, I'll be honest. I feel a little bit guilty that I didn't necessarily think about these things before getting pregnant and becoming a mother and giving birth. And it's something that I try to bring up in a lot of conversations now with people because it's really important, even though I didn't get the private room we were so well taken care of. And that is what matters in the end. And not everyone has that. And that's devastating. And also most of the women in the hospital, the nursing staff, they were, a lot of them were women of color. And both my um, midwife and my OB are women of color. And they just took such tremendous care of me. And I'm just, I'm so grateful. And again, just feel incredibly privileged and want to pay that forward in any way that, that we can going forward, just because it's not the experience that everyone has. And that's, mm-hmm. that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, thank so you. I'll been, be sure to link to that organization in the show notes for this episode. Yeah, they, they do incredible work and mm-hmm. yeah, it's just really given me a lot to think about working in fundraising. I could see myself maybe down the road shifting to working for maternal advocacy and maternal health. Cause it's just so important. And it's something that people need to be talking about and doing something about. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. So many yeses. Yeah. Well, as we start to wind things down, are there any other things you haven't gotten to share that you would like to share? One kind of funny thing actually is that in reviewing my notes from your class in the the days leading up to giving birth, when looking at the different types of pain management that are available, obviously mm-hmm. reading all about epidurals, And I had in my notes that some hospitals will offer opioids of some sort for pain management. And that kind of freaked me out. And so that was like in my mind. And so I'm laying in the room. They had, they were just about to administer the Pitocin. The lights were off in the room. And I see out of the corner of my eye, this, this IV bag that I'm going to be getting. And it said oxytocin on it. But in my mind, I converted it to Oxycontin and I was like, Oh Oh, no, Oh no. Is, am I like, and then I kind of freaked out because I was like, wait, that's like a very serious opioid. And so the nurse came back in and I said, can I ask you what's in that IV bag? And she goes, Oh, this is the Pitocin. And I was like, Oh, great. And she was like, is that okay? And I was like, I just saw Oxytocin and I thought, like Oxycontin. And she was like, Oh God, no. She was like, no, it's just says oxytocin. Cause it's the synthetic form of anyway. It was, I was like, Oh good. It just was this, like, I kind of laughed to myself because like, obviously it was not a giant bag of Oxycontin, but it just, <laughs> I was like, 
I think I was just very out of it um, already. It was the middle sure. of the night. It was like, we were about to have this baby. The other thing I want to mention is that in your class at the last, like the very end, you read us this beautiful poem about motherhood and talking about transition. And I thought about that poem when I was in transition. And I think right before we were about to push, we were like waiting for the doctor to come in. I just kind of took a moment and I just kind of cried to myself because it's a huge moment. And it's a moment that you wait for your whole pregnancy. And blessedly, we, you know, we were very lucky with our fertility that it wasn't a long fraught, difficult process like it is for so many families. But still, it's a long, you know, pregnancy is almost a year of your life and you think about your baby and just knowing that you're about to to meet her is very special. So I think, I hope you read that poem in all of your classes because I forget what it was called, but it was beautiful. And I, I thought about it at that moment of just like, yeah, not only are we, are we finally going to get to meet our baby, but both for my husband and I, we're going to suddenly have this new responsibility as parents and, you know, trying to give ourselves grace through that. Cause it definitely is challenging. It's a challenging um, transition. And a word that I've heard recently, that's very much resonated with me because I'm in it is this um, concept of matrescence. Is that, did you know I was going to say that? Yeah, I did. I did. Cause several things you've said, I almost said it myself. Yes, it's such a matrescence. <laughs> matrescence. It's such a good word. And it sounds like adolescence because it's about the physical and emotional process. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen immediately of becoming a mother and how fraught and yet how beautiful that process is. And it's a word I'm going to start using in my life and using with friends because yeah, it's a big transition. And even though you know, it's going to be a big transition when you're in it, it's very different. And so, yeah, I just, I heard that word a couple of weeks ago and I've been saying it to myself a lot. I've started using it more in class oh, recently. Good. Yeah. But, it's a yeah. great word. <laughs> it is. It is. Once you yeah. understand what it means, it, it really resonates, especially once you're experientially in it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mm. So I think this whole process has definitely given me so much perspective. And again, gratitude is the big word for me. Well, thank you so much, Laura. This has been just a joy to hear how well supported you were, what you know, smart choices you made, and also your growing awareness of these different issues that we face in the maternal healthcare system. I'm really encouraged to hear all of those things. And I, um, I wish you so much joy as you continue through this you know, you're getting close to the end of the fourth trimester, but not quite there. I'm, I'm sure it's still very challenging. It's always it's always going to be challenging. Parenting is <laughs> at any stage, but these first three months especially are super intense. So just know I'm with you in spirit. Thank you. And thank you so much. And if you need anything, I, again, so appreciate everything I learned from you. Would just encourage anybody to take a birth class, and yours particularly was incredible. Thank you for bearing with my very intense emotions. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure when people relay their stories, they get emotional because it's, it is so emotional and, but it feels good. It's nice to, to not hold back just how appreciative I am Mm -hmm. Um, and just reflect on what has only been two months. And yet I can't believe it's only been two months. (laughs) Right. It's that weird paradox of seems like it's molasses and yet like Oh, then your your daughter's going to be like 15 before you know it. I know, I know. And it's funny because I feel like I remember that entire day, like minute by minute, which is not the case for most days of my life. 
but obviously most days of my life, I don't have a baby for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you remember it, but but yes, Mm. I felt supported, informed, grateful, even when things didn't go the way exactly we wanted, just knowing the science behind everything and knowing that we were still empowered. Again, like I said, it was not an emergency. Nothing was an emergency. And thank God, I'm very grateful. I know there are a lot of very real, very scary emergencies and Mm -hmm. we did not have any of those. The COVID thing was our big curveball, and Mm. as hard as it was, it's behind us. And that's kind of, kind of all I'll say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Still probably a little bit of emotional processing. processing Yeah. Yeah. And the thing for me also, when we got the positive test was I was very afraid that it was going to rob us of the joy that we were experiencing in those early Mm -hmm. days. Mm-hmm. Blessedly, it didn't. We still had moments of a lot of joy. And even though I wanted all the support and in person care, just being me and Jacob for those 10 days in our apartment with our new baby and our dog were, I don't want to say they were magical because they were not, they were stressful. Yeah. But they were very important because it was our first time as a family and it was our first family crisis. Um, <laughs> We got through it right out of the gate, (laughs) right out of the gate. And we got through it and thank God we got through it. And I know that we're young and healthy, thank goodness, but not everyone who's young and healthy that gets this disease, you know, doesn't have mild situations like we did. So again, just gratitude with a very big capital G. As we wrap up this final episode of season two, I want to briefly touch on a few quick things that came up in this episode. Who doulas are for, how great it is when doulas or care providers provide anticipatory guidance, a bit more on the postpartum doula mentioned in this episode, and then at the end, I'll read the quote that Laura mentioned appreciating to leave you with something to reflect on. As Laura and I mentioned, doulas are there for any kind of labor preferences, not just for unmedicated births. We're there to support whatever you envision for your birth and also to help you more confidently navigate the unexpected twists and turns that labor can take, as you've heard in this and so many other birth stories on this podcast. One other common question about doulas I get asked is, when should I hire one? I'd point out that while you can hire one as late as you want or need, since you pay a flat fee, the earlier you hire your doula, the more support you'll receive for the same price, and the more you'll have a chance to get to know each other. And more obviously, the earlier you seek one out, the more options you'll have in selecting one. I also want to just emphasize how indispensable the anticipatory guidance doula Rachel provided was for Laura. This is a huge benefit of having an experienced doula who can anticipate the scenarios that are likely to happen and then help the laboring person or couple mentally prepare so they can proceed with much more confidence. For those who might not have listened to all the previous episodes, I want to mention that Adrian Stair, the postpartum doula praised in today's story, is the resident baby-wearing expert in our Astoria Doula Collective, and she teaches monthly baby-wearing 101 workshops for expectant and new parents. I'll link to her website in this show's notes for this episode, episode 72, over at birthmattersshow.com. She also shares her own two babies' birth stories in episodes 40 and 52. And if you go over to my Instagram TV over at birthmattersnyc, you can check out a chat Adrienne and I did in which she shared a bunch of fascinating benefits of baby wearing. 
Well, friends, this brings us to the end of our second season. While we're on hiatus working behind the scenes on lots more new content for season three, I'd recommend going back and listening to any of the stories you might have missed. There are many of them at this point. Over the summer, I'm hoping to send out collections of episodes by category, such as ones that focus on partners, births with doulas, inductions, home births, and other topics that might be useful to have compiled into a neat list of clickables. So be sure to either hop on our email list over at birthmattersshow.com or follow us on Instagram at birthmattersnyc for those updates. If you're giving birth over the next few months, I hope to see you in class or at a Meet the Doulas event with Astoria Doula Collective. Finally, I wanted to share the quote Laura mentioned that I read to my classes when they graduate, and it's written by someone named Carly Mendez, who's a holistic nutritionist. If you hear this quote and you'd like to take a deeper dive into this concept of matrescence and process your transformation into parenthood, I'd highly recommend for your summer reading list a book by Dr. Britta Bushnell called Transformed by Birth. So here's the quote. There is a phase in labor appropriately called transition where a woman will meet her breaking point. She'll feel as though she just can't go on. And she is right. The maiden in her is not strong enough for the task at hand. It's during this time the maiden dies so that the woman can be reborn as a mother with her child. A new, more capable version of herself with far more strength than she has ever known. From maiden to mother. In keeping with today's theme of gratitude, and as we wrap up season two, I want to communicate an immense sense of gratitude to each of you for listening. This is truly a labor of love, so I'm always deeply grateful when I hear that folks are listening and finding it helpful, since that's the whole reason the podcast exists. So I'm sending you love, hugs, and gratitude. Until we meet again, just remember, you are strong. And you got this.